Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. Welcome back to the Talking Trees podcast, and we have an old friend coming on the show, Zane (laughs) Rodden Bush is the turf grass and herbicide specialist for the Davy Tree Expert Company in Kent, Ohio. And every time that Zane and I talk, we're only supposed to talk for about 20 minutes, Zane, but it ends up being about 40 minutes, and it makes me have to put two episodes out, but that's okay. <laughs> no, man, I appreciate you having me back. It's uh, I love riffing with you on all this stuff, so um, yeah, we'll see where it takes us today. Well, so we're getting into the time where things are warming up. We're getting to spring, and we're thinking about that uh, that turf on our own properties. When you get to this point in the season, what are some of the first questions you get from homeowners uh, about about their lawn? What should they be doing now to to get ready for when we're going to start mowing? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that one in two parts, Doug, because I it's there's definitely a cadence to the type of questions that I receive, you know, as a technical expert. Uh, so from our field, from our customers, and then also the kind of samples that our lab receives, you know, so in the, our lab, our, our in-house diagnostic lab that does about 2,300 samples a year, they get a lot of turf samples. And so you kind of start to see the same stuff over and over and over again at certain times of the year. So the beginning of the year, the two biggies that we get coming into the lab are two weedy grass species. We have, one known as annual bluegrass or poa annua, you might hear it called, and then rough stock bluegrass, which is poa trivialis. They're both in the bluegrass family, and generally we consider them to be weeds. And a lot of times they're almost in every lawn. Like I could go to most lawns and probably find both of those species. And most people don't know that they have them. But in the spring, those species green up. They have a really light green, kind of lime green color, and they start growing sooner than the desirable species do, like the rye grasses and Kentucky bluegrasses and tall fescues. You'll see, you're like, what are these light green patchy plants in my yard that seem to be growing a lot faster than everything else? And so, uh, yeah, I get a lot of questions about those two weedy species that are really difficult to control, Doug. I mean, the annual bluegrass is probably the most troublesome weed in turf grass systems in the world. And so that's one that's a real challenge. It produces a lot of seed at low mowing heights. So that's that's one thing that's different about turf grass systems is that if you want to be a successful weed in a turf grass system, you have to tolerate mowing. And a lot of weeds don't tolerate mowing. So uh, annual bluegrass tolerates mowing and then it, it's also able to just produce hundreds of seeds uh, below the mower deck. So, you know, some plants produce seed, but we mow off all the reproductive structures, not annual bluegrass. It has, it's really well adapted producing lots of seeds. So, and then, uh, so that's a challenge. And then uh, Poa trivialis is a stoloniferous grass. So uh, for, the, for the listeners out there, you know, grasses really have three growth habits. They can be bunch type grasses like rye grasses and tall fescues, uh, where basically uh, you have a single plant and it, it can produce new shoots, but it really can't spread laterally. You know, it can't fill pockets and voids from dog urine stains or foot traffic. Uh, it, the stand will just thin and you'll end up with bare spots once the stand begins to thin. And then you have rhizomes like Kentucky bluegrass. Those are 
below ground stems. So these are stems that are produced from a plant that grow out laterally under the soil and they, you know, they can uh, produce new shoots at the nodes and begin to, you know, put off offshoots from the parent plant. So that has really good recuperative ability, but stoloniferous plants like creeping bent grass and poa trivialis, they produce these lateral stems that grow on the soil surface. So they're growing above the surface, they have these lateral shoots, and they allow the plant to start creeping throughout the lawn and you get this really patch-like behavior. And so poa trivialis is one that's creeping along the surface in and amongst your desirable plants. And in the spring, because it grows so vigorously, people notice these light green patches in their lawn and they really key in on that. And uh, it's good to notice because it has really poor heat tolerance. Poa, uh, Poa trivialis or rough stalk bluegrass as it's called is a weedy species because in the summer months it will die. It has no heat tolerance. It's a grass that's used um, as two main uses, wet, heavily shaded sites. And then it's really primarily used uh, to overseed putting greens in the south. So Bermuda grass putting greens that would go dormant they use Poa trivialis, they seed it into those greens uh, and they play on it in the winter. And then when it gets warm, it just naturally dies and the Bermuda grass takes over. So uh, I start to receive a lot of questions about that in the lab. So if I had that, both of those things in my lawn, what would I want to do? How do I get rid of it? And, and I mean, do I, do I care? I guess I do care because I, I, it might look okay to me now, but when it gets hot and dry, that's going to be a bare spot. Is that right? It will. Yeah. You'll particularly with uh, Poa trivialis, it will senesce and, and die, but it often comes back. Doug, that's a million dollar question. If I knew the answer to that one or had a, I would be many, many smarter people for, you know, than me have tried really hard to manage the, both of those plants. And it's, it's just difficult. There are things that you can do, I think, to decrease you know, the prevalence of it in a turf grass system, but they're, they're incredible invaders. Um, I, I tell people sometimes you're picking a battle that you might not win. So if it really gets to a point where it's, it's becoming a major component of the stand, you know, like it starts to reach that 20 per 20, 30% of the stand, that's where sometimes we just recommend a renovation, kind of start over, uh, get those plants out of there, either with like non-selective herbicides or mechanical removal. But if they're just small patches, sometimes we can, you know, go in there and apply a non-selective herbicide and kill those areas and reseed them. They could be mechanically removed. Uh, you could, there are, there are some options, but um, it's one, Doug, that, I mean, the professionals, people with all the resources, uh, it's a challenge for like in sports fields, if you look in a professional field, they mechanically remove it. So they have people that walk every inch of those fields and mechanically cut it out and re and replug it in. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very, very challenging weed. Like where you are there in the Pittsburgh area, people embrace it. When you look at many of those great golf courses, the Oakmonts of the world, they just manage annual bluegrass. They, they kind of embrace it because it's just so prolific uh, in that area. Well, I'm going to embrace it because I don't want to go out there and mechanically move it out of there. You know, if it's green for a while, that's good for me. You know, I have what I call a quilted lawn. It has uh, a little bit of everything. <laughs> I, I understand. I would say too, for the listeners, if you're someone that's in that space, like, oh no, this is, I see what Zane's talking about. I have it, you know, as the other grasses, the desirable species come out of dormancy, really start growing. 
the color the color differences kind of begin to weave together and they're not nearly as noticeable once you get into the growing season but the poa trivialis is one that you know it will die in the summer months so that's one that you may want to try to get controlled and there there are options talk to a professional there are some selective tools but it's a it's a long haul process a couple seasons doug it's not a one and done type deal how important is it to have a soil test when you're in this part of the season spring like this and you you are wondering how to make your lawn the best it can be yeah soil testing is an underutilized tool in my opinion um i use soil testing for a couple different reasons uh one i often use it to see if there's any kind of smoking gun you know you you don't know if you don't test i always tell people don't guess test and so what i mean by a smoking gun is sometimes there can be really funky things going on in the soil odd chemistry pieces you know super low phs that can result in aluminum toxicity you can have you know, really high pHs above 8.5 if you maybe have a potential irrigation source that has lots of salts in it. Um, and then you can sometimes find just nutrient deficiencies, you know, nutrients that are just completely deficient in the soil that if you're not applying those nutrients uh, with your fertilization program, you know, you're, you're missing an opportunity to improve the turf grass quality. So I use it to in two ways primarily. One, I use it to determine is there a deficiency somewhere, something about the soil that is deficient, you know? Um, but then I also use it to determine what do I not need to apply? Cause soils are amazing reservoirs of nutrients. And so sometimes I find that they have plenty of phosphorus, plenty of potassium in the soil. We don't actually need to apply those nutrients in any, you know, large quantities. And so for me, that can reduce the amount of the cost of the fertilizer and so I, that's kind of the two primary ways that I use it. And then I also, depending on the scenario, can tell me a little bit about the health of the soil. So soil tests will tell you the percentage of organic matter. They will tell you the cation exchange capacity. You can also get them to tell you the soil texture. So uh, for me, Doug, for what they cost, you know, uh, for your listeners that are in Pennsylvania there, I'm sure Penn State does a lot of testing or whoever your land grant institution would be this is usually a, a 15 to 20 dollar kind of test that can reveal a ton of information um, particularly if it gives you that smoke and gun where it's like wow i didn't realize i had a major uh, magnesium deficiency or whatever it might be so if i get my ph right and my nutrients right and maybe a couple other things i mean when i get that soil test is it going to tell me what to do you know, once I see all this information? It depends on, you know, like our lab, we do then provide the recommendations. So you'll get the results. And then there's recommendations that accompany that about, you know, whether you need to lime. And if you're going to lime, do you need a calcitic lime source or a dolomitic lime source? And then what are some of the sources of fertilizer that would deliver the nutrients that you need? And so, yeah, most soil tests will give some basic recommendation about what to apply, but they don't always tell you, you know, the right time, so on and so forth. So that's where, you know, work with like a local extension specialist to to try to hone in a little bit more on what would the timing be, so on and so forth. So getting the pH and the nutrients right is definitely going to be a bonus for me when I'm trying to grow grass, right? Yes, for sure. I I, for me, I have a little bit different um, 
perspective on pH. If you really scour the literature, there isn't always a ton of evidence to support that changing the pH results in major differences in turf grass quality. You know, you see that for agronomic crops where we can measure the yield, uh, that you can see that changing the pH has a, you know, a measurable difference. But in turf grass systems, turf grasses are plants that are not all that sensitive to pH. So they, they can grow over a wide range of pHs and they're not like a, they're not like a blueberry plant that needs a really acidic soil. So there are definitely examples of plants that thrive at certain pHs, but in general, turf grasses, uh, they're pretty, they're, they're pretty uh, receptive to a wide range of pHs. So for me, I definitely get concerned when I see the pH dropping below 5.5. Uh, you can have concerns of aluminum toxicity uh, as you start to solubilize more of that acidic pHs. And then again, when I start to see it climbing up above eight, that's when I start to get concerned that is there a potential with sodium getting onto the site. And if there's, if that's the case, it's usually coming along in the irrigation water, Doug. So that's not one that I see a lot in our area. I see that more of the soil tests that I deal with from other parts of the country within our company. Um, so the pH thing, uh, like for adding lime, there's a lot of other benefits to lime. You know, it can help with soil aggregation. So aggregation is this idea that the little small soil particles will start to create colloids where they kind of ball together. And as you do that, you create soil structure. And really soil structure is a major part of creating a good system. That's what creates the little pockets and holes for water and air and roots to go through. So liming, yes, as it's used as a way to try to change the pH, there are other benefits to liming um, that people don't always, don't always realize. Well, that's interesting because I always tell this story about when I was a kid growing up in Ohio, how my dad would send the boys out boys, we're going to lime the yard. Uh, and I've always thought that, you know, looking at it from my uh, perspective now was like, how did he know how much lime to put on there? But the, what you're saying is at least if you put some lime on there, it's going to help. Is that right? It, it definitely depends on the scenario. If you have a pH that, you know, is neutral or alkaline, so you start to get a pH above, you know, anything above 6.8, I don't recommend liming those soils. So if you get a soil test back and it has a pH of 7.2, there won't be a liming requirement there. We're not going to recommend that you would apply lime to that kind of soil. You could use a product called gypsum, which also has calcium in it that does those things like I was talking about of giving a place for the little uh, clay particles to attach to and start to create some structure. Um, but yes, back to the question, you know, liming, you can, you can put a lot of it down. Uh, I often recommend that it be put down in the fall. It's just, it's, it's not very soluble. It takes a long time to break down in the soil. So it's not something that you apply and immediately see a response. It takes time. So if you put it down in the fall, you give it time to break down and to get into the soil. Um, but liming is definitely something I think that uh, people see as it's often recommended in agriculture and agricultural cropping systems. It does make a difference in turf grass systems in general. Like if you look at a lot of the worst turf grass diseases, like the, the soil borne pathogens, like take all patch, summer patch, a lot of evidence to suggest that they are much worse at higher soil pHs. And so, you know, for me, if the soil's on the acidic side, I typically don't mess with it. I, I leave it there. And I, I, I focus my efforts, Doug, on the other parts of that soil test, like 
what is the organic matter? Does this soil have much organic matter in it? Does it have a nutrient deficiency? And so I would, I'll use the resources that someone might spend on lime to maybe amend that soil with organic matter or a nutrient that, you know, you wouldn't apply before you had a soil test. So, um, yeah, you, you know, again, I, you look through the literature, there is, it's funny, we see a lot of liming recommended, but there is not a ton of literature to suggest that it, in turf grass systems, it makes a major difference. And in fact, there's some experiments out there like uh, park grass experiments that show as the pH goes up, you actually can potentially start to get more weeds. I mean, these are long-term studies that they did for many, many years that as the pH begins to increase, you know, above seven, eight, that you start to get more weeds and the, you know, the weeds are thriving and potentially in those systems. So yeah, I could, I could talk for an hour, Doug, on, on soil pH and what we do and don't know, you know, it's, it's a challenge because you know, all the, there's a lot of facets there, soil type, turf grass species. Uh, it's just not always so straightforward. And I think our, the turf grass community in general, there is a real, uh, there is a real focus right now, Doug, on soils. I think the turf grass community in general is there's a feeling of, of we, we really need to look hard and get a better understanding because most of the recommendations for turf grass systems, as it relates to soil tests and fertilizer recommendations have been adopted from field crops you know grassy field crops like wheat and rye and forage crops and so they take those recommendations and apply them to turf grass systems but they're they're different the objectives are often different um, the soils are different you know we're often growing these plants in urban environments where the soils often been disturbed within the last 10 or 20 years as they constructed a home or put in a sidewalk. And so it's just, a, it's a little bit different. So yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more research in that space. And it wouldn't surprise me if the recommendations change over the next decade. Well, Zane, we're already out of time for our first episode, but we're going to continue recording and break this up into two episodes. Great stuff. And I can't wait to continue our conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I am your host, Doug Oster, and do me a big favor. Subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Do you have an idea for a show or a comment? Well, send me an email at podcasts, that's plural, at davy.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at D-A-V-E-Y.com. And as always, we'd like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer.